Well, I know some of you have been putting into practice uh, the three questions of evangelism that we learned uh, earlier this summer at that seminar uh, with our brother Tony Gwynn. Uh, If you weren't there or if you've forgotten them, there are three questions you can ask that give you a very easy open door to share the gospel with most people around here in Greenwood, in South Indy, wherever you might live. And the three questions go like this. First one's real easy. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Okay. We can remember that one, right? Okay. Second question, the really important one, how do you believe a person gets into heaven? And then they'll tell you what they think. And, and Tony says 90% of the time people say good works. And, and my experience has proven that to be true as well. Uh, and then the third question is, do you mind if I share with you what the Bible teaches about that? And if they give their consent there, you've got an open door. You can just tell them what the Bible teaches about salvation, fall, sin, forgiveness, all of it. Now, one thing that's interesting about that is that, sure enough, when Tony told me, I sat down with him and he told me, you know, 90% of the time when you ask people how they believe a person gets into heaven, they say good works. And I thought, really? Like, I would have thought that like 60% of people around here would say, well, I'm not really sure if there is a heaven or if there is a God, and I actually don't believe in that God or any of that stuff. But no, like most of the people around here still assume there is a God and there is a heaven. And then you ask them, how does a person get into it? And they, oh, you'd, you'd be in a good person, good works. And something I find so fascinating about that is that I don't know a single church in Greenwood, in South Indy, really anywhere around that would preach that gospel. Plenty of churches preach the gospel wrongly. Don't get me wrong. But I just don't know of anywhere in Greenwood where someone would stand in the pulpit and blatantly say, everyone, there is a heaven and the way you get there is by being a good person. I've never heard that proclaimed in the pulpit in Greenwood. And so why is it a default for every like kind of religious person here to just kind of default back into, yeah, there's a heaven and you get there by being a good person. What does that say about us? What does that say about human nature? What's going on there? Well, part of what's going on, part of why we would just default to thinking you got to earn your way into heaven by being good, is that most of us tend to want a transactional relationship with God. The same relationship that you have with Burger King, right? I pay you, you give me a thing. Or anywhere that you go, right? I pay my dues and I get my thing. Uh, we're, we're used to that. And so it's just natural for us and it's a natural part of humanity to want God to look at you and say, yep, here's my standard and yeah, you meet it. All right, come on in. You're a good enough person to be my friend and dwell with me in heaven forever. There's something in every human heart that wants to hear that. Not just that we have the Lord as our blessing, but that we earned the Lord as our blessing. Uh, My wife just told a story recently of, we just went to Costco, I think for the first time as a family. Uh, We're trying to decide if we want to give a membership there, and it is an incredible place. We're walking out, and there was a booth there where they were giving away free bags, and it was like, sign said, free tote. And uh, one of our kids saw it and was like, hey, free tote, like we need to go get that free tote. And Emily said very wisely, well, honey, nothing is free. Uh, That's not how it works, right? No, it's not a free tote. It's sign up for this credit card and you get a free tote, right? Nothing is really free in our world. And so we expect that if the sign says free tote, 
you go over there and you're going to have to do something to get the free toad, right? That's just how it works. Then we come into the house of the Lord and it just makes, that's how everything else works, right? You got to do something to get the free thing. And so the preacher says, no, the gospel is actually free. Salvation is given freely by Jesus Christ. And it's almost like we know better, right? Like, no, no, not, that's not how it works, right? Nothing is free. What do I need to give to earn this? Well, we are going to read a story today where that part of our hearts, that part that just wants to give something to earn what we have from God, uh, will be exposed in a character who is very prone to that very tendency. He wants a transactional relationship with God. And we're going to see that part of our hearts exposed along the way as well. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are at the halfway point of a series through First and Second Kings. Uh, it's not a slow walk through a book like we usually do. It's a quick hop, skip, and a jump at the pace of our church's Bible reading plan, which is seven chapters a week. Uh, we are at the point now, uh, First and Second Kings catalog the story of Israel's fall from their golden age under Solomon all the way down to the terrors of the exile. They basically tell the story, how did this thing fall apart? So it's a story of a slow unraveling of a kingdom. Things have gotten bad and worse. The kingdom is now split into two. They don't like each other very much, but they kind of get along. The northern kingdom has fallen into such deep idolatry that the Lord has raised up an adversary for them, the nation of Syria. Uh, the Lord sent the prophet Elijah to go to a foreign nation of Syria and anoint a king for them, right? The Lord's anointed king of a foreign nation. And their job is to fight against Israel and win as punishment for Israel's idolatry. So Syria is regularly raiding Israel and causing problems. They are, the king often sends letters to the king of Israel saying, uh, I declare now that all of your gold and your wife and all of your children are mine. And if the king doesn't meet the demands, then the king of Syria comes and wipes out his country. Like not a very warm and fuzzy, like this is a bullying relationship they have here. And in the midst of this, the Lord moves the story. Now, this part's not going to take place in Israel. We're going to move our eyes to Syria, to the nation of the bad guys, and we're going to see what's going on in there. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 5, and I'm going to read the whole story to you this morning. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of, Is uh, king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, am, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. 
But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash and be clean. Wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leopard. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? And so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Uh, Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. But when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. And he said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing, and he laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments? olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, like snow. The words of the Lord.
Through this story, the Lord warms the hearts of his people toward the gospel of Jesus Christ by showing us one very precious aspect of his character, and that is that he does not bargain with the great. Instead, he gives to the humble. And my prayer is that as the Lord reveals this to us through the details of this story, he will just light a fire in our hearts for the gospel of Jesus offered freely to the humble rather than something that must be earned. If you're here today and and you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord of all of the earth, I pray he'll use this even to point you to that gospel and bring you to Jesus. And if you, like many of us, already trust and already have received the gospel of Jesus, I just pray it warms your heart to him even more. So I've given you a little bit of the background here, right? Syria has been raised up as this big bad nation that is punishing Israel for their disobedience under the hand of God. The prophet Elijah that we talked about last week uh, has now gone on. He's been carried up into heaven and his successor is a man with a very similar name, Elisha. Uh, He is doing many of the same things that Elijah did, but with more power and the surrounding areas becoming just a little bit darker. So, there is this man named Naaman, and there he is in Syria. And you probably caught it from the many details, but there's one thing that this storyteller really wants you to notice about Naaman, and that is that he is a big deal. He's a big kahuna. He's a great man, right? We can see all kinds of details about this. In the very first verse, it's just listed, right? He's a great man. He's king of the army of Syria. He's in high favor with the king. The Lord had given him victory, and he's a mighty man of valor. Now, there will be more details that show you how great he is later, but we're already starting off pretty great. Like, he's basically second in command in all of Syria, and the king loves him. He's won a lot of battles. Big guy. But one problem, he's a leper. Leprosy was a, largely a skin condition uh, that people had then, and we aren't sure quite what diseases it is that causes this. They're probably still around today. Very contagious. And in Israel, there were laws about it. If you came down with it, you had to live outside the city gates, basically quarantined and away from everybody. Uh, and there was this sense of don't kiss your wife on the way out, like get out of here, right? You're, you're ostracized socially if you have this stuff. Uh, and it's, it's that way, kind of a metaphor for sin and for shame, right? It, it, it's gross, all the boils on your skin, uh, fills a person with shame, ruins all of their relationships and just leaves them begging before God, God, would you, would you fix this? God, would you, whatever's wrong here, would you make it right? Often the Lord would make it right and there were laws in Israel's law what to do to restore someone when the Lord healed them from leprosy. Well, Naaman has this condition. And so on one hand, he is this great man and on the other hand, he's got gross sores on his body and everybody can see it. And the whole thing is really almost an act to cover up uh, how humiliated he is over all of this. A great man with a great flaw. Now his wife has a slave girl and she's an Israelite and they captured her on one of the raids. Uh, So he has either killed her family uh, or just kidnapped her from her family and she's now a slave in this house. And it's really touching the way that this little girl looks to her captor and oppressor and says, oh, I wish that he would go see the prophet in Israel and get healed. Isn't that just the last thing you would think this little girl would say? Now, there's a whole sermon right there that we'll just skip over today, but but we should at least pause and say, would we have that kind of love for our oppressors, 
We have that kind of goodwill for the people who wrong us and oppress us like this little girl does. Well, Naaman hears that. Actually, his wife hears it, gives it to him. He goes to the king and says, I want to go and and try this out. Like, there's a man of God over there in Israel, and and he can heal me. And the king says, yeah, go on. You you, you can do it. I'll tell you what, I will write a letter, right? Because he got favored. And so, yeah, I'll write a letter. When this letter reaches you, heal the guy. Okay, so now Naaman is going to the king of Israel, and he has got, it says, a letter from the king. That's pretty serious right there. Buckets of gold and silver and 10 changes of clothing. So he is coming like fully loaded with all kinds of stuff to give. The king of Israel hears him and he panics because this is not the first letter the king of Syria has sent him making a demand. The other ones were terrible, but they were possible to meet. This one, he says, I can't do that. So he interprets it as a threat, right? Heal this man or I'm going to come conquer your land and kill you and all of your people. And he thinks, what? Does he just want to destroy us? Like, is he just sending a test that nobody can pass? Like, what's, what's he doing? He starts to panic. The prophet Elisha hears this and says, whoa, 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 calm down. There is a man of God in Israel. Why don't you send him to me so that everyone knows? And so now, Naaman and his entourage go and they visit Elisha. With, it says, all of his horses and all of his chariots. Okay, so you you see how big this guy is, like big kahuna, right? Buckets of gold, buckets of silver, 10 changes of clothing, letter from the king, great man, won many battles, general in the army, has the favor of the king, and now many horses and chariots in his wake. This guy shows up and everybody notices, right? This would be like if President Biden came with his whole motorcade and stopped in front of the intern house and knocked on Morgan's door. Big deal, right? Like the news is there. Everyone, the neighbors are looking out the window like, is that really, I think that's really him. Like everyone's watching. This is a massive deal. What is going on here? And that is why it is really telling what Elisha does. He doesn't even get out of his chair. He sends a messenger and says, tell him to go wash in the river. And then he gets back to what he's doing. <laughs> One thing I love about First and Second Kings is there are just a lot of good burns like that in First and Second Kings. Like a lot of times that the prophet just does something and you're like, ooh, that was good, right? In this case, it's yeah, just tell him to go wash in the river. I don't, I don't really have time for this small man at my doorstep. And so you can understand then why Naaman reacts with rage and anger, Right? I came all the way with my entourage. Don't you see how important I am? And here I am at your door, standing before you, right? And you won't even come down and talk to me. And so he says, behold, I I thought he would have come out here and waved his hands all over the place and, you know, jumped around me three times and lit the incense and made the smoke go, made like this big dog and pony show for me so that I could be healed. And he he won't even come and see me at the door. Uh, Then he goes on a rant about how Syria's rivers are better than Israel's rivers. And if I wanted to wash, I would just go wash in Syria's. You could just see him like stomping his feet. Our rivers are better than your rivers. And I'm going to go wash in our rivers and not in your rivers. Like his feelings are hurt because Elisha will not come to the door. He's mad. Why is he mad? 
He's mad because he thought that the man of God owed him honor because he was a great man. And really what that means is he thought the Lord owed him honor because he was a great man. He thought he could show up with all of this stuff and say, here's all my stuff, I bring my gifts, you can have it all, time for you to put on the show and give me a healing. He wanted a transactional relationship with God. And God doesn't work like that. God doesn't bargain with the great. He gives to the humble. And so Elisha says, you have brought all of this. All you have to do is go humble yourself and wash in the river. God doesn't bargain with the great. He gives to the humble. So Naaman has to learn this lesson. His servants look to him and they plead with him. Father, don't, don't you see? His deal is better than your deal. Like you, you can keep the gold. Like you can keep all the stuff and, and just, just go wash in the river. Did he really say that? And so he listens to them. He humbles himself and he washes in a river that he has probably turned his nose up at all his life and said that he is too good to set his feet in. Washes in Israel's river. And he finds that the Lord clears his skin and his flesh like the skin and the flesh of a little child. You ever held a baby in your arms? Our kids aren't babies anymore. You just feel how soft that flesh is. The Lord restored him like that. Baby skin. Because he humbled himself. Naaman needed to learn the lesson that God doesn't bargain with the great. He gives to the humble. And he learned it. He humbled himself and washed in the river. Now, the big question is, what's that mean for us, right? How can we use that in our Christian lives? Or if you're not a Christian, just in, in your life, what, what can that, what is the Lord going to do for you in that? Well, the New Testament gives us a lot of clues about how to understand the Old Testament and how the Lord wants to use it in our life. And here is one of them that I think really helps for this text. He, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he talks about the Holy Scriptures, which in that day was the Old Testament, uh, and he says, they are able to make you wise for salvation. What does that mean? It means it teaches you lessons that prepare your heart to receive the gospel of Jesus. Now, the gospel of Jesus is not explicit in the Old Testament. You will not read about Jesus Christ by name and about the gospel explicitly in the Old Testament. What you will learn is a whole lot of lessons that get your heart ready to receive the gospel. Lessons like there is a holy God in heaven and his standard is perfect righteousness. Lessons like we have sinned before that God. Lessons like God's anger and judgment is just and we deserve it. Lessons like forgiveness is brought about by a spotless sacrifice that sheds its blood and gives its life. All these lessons, you absorb them over and over and over, and then you're put in a place where you're wise for salvation, where the gospel is shared with you, and you say, oh, yeah, I, I get it. That makes sense. Yeah, Jesus Christ died to pay for my sins because I need forgiveness, and I will receive it. So the Old Testament can make you wise for salvation in that way, teaching you lessons that if you receive them along the way, you will be in a place that's really good place, ready to receive the gospel. How does this story do that? How does this lesson do that? How does embracing the truth that God doesn't bargain with the great, he gives to the humble, how does that help you to receive in and rejoice in the gospel? Well, it works a little like this. We all have a little bit of name in, in us, right? We, we all got a little part of us that wants to earn what we have with God, 
that wants that transactional relationship, just like you have at Costco if you're a member there, or Amazon if you're a Prime member, right? I, I give to you, you give to me, that's how it works. And the way those relationships work is I have given to you and therefore you owe me, right? If you order something on Amazon and you pay for it and the package doesn't come, what do you do? You call customer service, say, my package didn't come. You guys, right? Like I paid you, you're supposed to do your part. That's how a transactional relationship works. We want to have that before the Lord. We want to say, because I'm great or because I have done X, Y, Z or because I have brought my gift or because whatever it is about me, whatever's great about us, we want to lean on it and say, Lord, you should accept me for, for this reason. Here's my standard and I have met it. Now I believe that you owe me this. This is what Naaman wanted to do. And this is what deep in our hearts all of us want to do as well. But the Lord wants to overcome that and say, no, I don't work that way. I don't bargain with great people. I give to humble people. And if you want to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, the free gift of Jesus Christ, what you must do is humble yourself and come not with gold, silver, horses, chariots, and a letter from the king, but come with nothing and receive the free gift of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can be saved. Jesus doesn't save great people. No. He saves sinners who are so miserable that they know they have nothing to offer and could only be saved by a free gift. No one who is great in their own eyes can come to receive the gospel because we must be humbled in our own eyes to receive the gospel. So the only way to be saved then is to receive the free gift of Jesus Christ. Cannot be done any other way. What does that mean though, right? Well, the book of John, the gospel of John, the first chapter, John is introducing Jesus. And he says that Jesus was, was God made man, basically God come to earth. And that he came to, to save and redeem his people. Um, and this is a very interesting thing. His own people didn't receive him. And then he says to those who did receive him, keyword receive, those who did receive him, who believed upon his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So we become children of God by receiving the free gift of Jesus. He was sent as savior to secure our forgiveness for our sins. He was sent as king to rule, reign, and bring justice through his good law. He was sent as God made man to rule his people as God. To receive him just means to look to him and say, yes, you are that, and I rejoice in it. By contrast, many people rejected him and said, no, no, you are not that, and no, we do not receive what you offer us. And they did this so vehemently that it ended in his bloody death on a cross. But some look to him and say, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You are Lord, you are King, you are God, and you are Savior. And I need you to be that. That's what it means to receive Jesus. Receiving him as everything that he is, as a free gift given. Another way this is said is in Ephesians 2. Some of you have memorized Ephesians 2, verses 7 and 8, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not of your own doing. It is not by works so that no one can boast. So we have been saved. We need to be forgiven for our sin in order to be in his presence again, in order to end our life in his kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. We've got to be forgiven for our sin. That salvation only comes by grace. The only way to receive it is to be given it. You cannot earn it. And that grace is received through faith, through what John said was believing on his name, right? Trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and looking to him to do those things for you, to be savior, to be king, right? So through faith, we're given the gift. And then Paul's really clear to say it is not by works, right? You cannot work your way in. You can't earn it. You can't do that. Why not? So that no Naaman can boast, so that nobody can show up at the man of God's doorstep and say, here's all my stuff, come out and honor me, right? The Lord doesn't want that in his kingdom. He doesn't want any of us walking around in his kingdom saying, look how much we earned, right? No, look how much the Lord earned for us, right? So it's given as a gift and cannot be earned because if we could earn, we could boast about it. We could act like Naaman and say, yeah, I'm good enough to bargain with God and say, I give you this and you give me this. The Lord says, no, I don't bargain with the great. I give to the humble. There are many ways that we try to bargain with God. Most of us kind of define our own terms and say, okay, I'll do this and I'll hope that that's enough, right? Uh, For many, it's uh, giving to charity, right? I have a lot of money and so I give to this charity and that charity and I do this and I do that and I do all that. And I expect that in the end, when I meet God, he'll say, you were very generous and come on in, right? Or for others of us, it is ritual, right? Uh, I, I went to Mass every Sunday and I went to confession. I did all of the things, and so since I've done all of the things, I should have God's favor. Or I, I prayed five times a day facing Mecca and I went and took the spiritual journey to Mecca, and so because I did all of the ritual, I should be saved. But the most common one here uh, in this part of the state in the country is what I would call the, the pretty good person gospel. Um, This is a person who's humble enough to say, there are a lot of people more righteous than I am, Uh, and and I can even think of a few people more righteous than me, but I'm trying to be a good person. And, I mean, I'm not great, but I mean, I'm I'm decent, like I'm a pretty good person, right? And, And I think that that ought to be enough for God, right? If I just don't do anything really bad, and I'm pretty decent, I ought to be given entrance into heaven. I think we're drawn to this because we want to think that God chooses his friends the way that we choose our friends. Uh, If you have some close friends, you probably know they're not perfect people, and you don't hold it against them that they're not perfect people. But they're pretty decent people, right? And you like being around them, and so, you know, they're not perfect, but they're good enough for me, and so here we are, we're friends, and we like that. And we want to think that God would look at us and judge us the same way that we judge our friends. As long as we don't do anything really bad, you know, we can still be friends. As long as you don't hurt me too bad, we can still be friends. And the Lord looks from heaven and he says, be holy as I am holy. He says, this is my standard for you is my own righteousness and my own holiness. Being a pretty good person is not enough. God makes his standard clear in a few places in the scripture. Uh, Once in Ecclesiastes and another, the same standard in the book of Acts. Uh, It's very simply, fear God and keep his commands. 
Ecclesiastes says that's the whole duty of man. If you, don't, if you do that, if you can go to God and say, I have feared you all of my life, I've kept all of your commands, he, he will say, you have done your duty. Uh, or in Acts, it says it very similarly, to fear God and do what is right. Anyone who does that is acceptable to him. So if you can go before him and say, every second of my life from when I was born to when I died, I kept all of your commands and I worshiped you with a deep, authentic reverence and the fear of God. If you can say that, he will say, and he owes you, okay, you have met my standard, you're acceptable to me, you've done your duty, come on in. That's true, and that's not a works gospel. It's not a works gospel because we all know we can't do that, right? We all know that there is some mixture of righteousness and sin in each of us. None of us, I hope, would dare go before him and say, I have kept all of your commandments my whole life and worshiped you reverently my whole life. But we want to think that there's some mixture of good and bad that the Lord is willing to accept, right? Like I'm 90% good and only 10% bad, and so that ought to be enough for him, right? But... None of us would accept a glass of drinking water that was 90% water and 10% human waste. None of us would accept that. I hope none of us would accept a glass of drinking water that was 99% water and 1% human waste. And in the same way, the Lord is not willing to accept 99% righteousness and 1% sin, except that our sin is more abhorrent to him than human waste is to us. He says, be holy as I am holy. Perfect righteousness is the only standard he will accept. And so when sinners come before him to try to bargain and say, well, what if I do this? Then you should accept me. He says, I don't bargain with the great. I give to the humble. There's no mixture of righteousness I will accept. There is no train of horses and chariots that is more glorious than the train of my robe in my temple. There is no letter from the king that I would care to hear because I am his king. There is no amount of gold that would impress me because all of the gold on the earth is mine. I made it. There's nothing you could give him to bargain with him if you have sinned against him. So he says, I don't bargain with the great. I give to the humble. So Naaman's servants, they pled with him. And I said, Master, don't don't be angry, right? This is a really good deal. You need to take it, right? And in the same way, I, I would plead with you, if you were trying to bargain with God, see how much better the deal he offers to you is. Let, let me ask you this. If, if this is what it took to spare yourself the fires of hell forever and to receive the kingdom of heaven forever, would you be willing to give up every penny you have and every possession you have and live the whole rest of your life in complete poverty with nothing? Would you be will- if that were the deal, would you be willing to give that up to gain the pleasures of heaven and spare yourself the fires of hell forever? If that's what you had to do. Or would you be willing to breathe your last breath in the pew right now and give your life if that was the only way that you could spare yourself the fires of hell forever and gain the pleasures of heaven forever? How much would you give to gain heaven 
and be safe from hell. And here's my question. Will you not take it for free? He offers with his hand the free gift of Jesus Christ. Free and costly at once. So friend, receive Jesus Christ as Savior and as King. Okay, let's continue on in the story because there is another way that this lesson is taught. So there is a servant named Gehazi. Naaman leaves and Gehazi says, I don't like this. He was supposed to pay. (laughs) And so he goes and catches up with Naaman and he lies to Naaman. Now there's a neat little detail there. Naaman gets out of the chariot and actually lowers himself before Gehazi. So now he's actually humbled himself. He's willing to humble himself before a servant. Now, Gehazi lies to him and says, actually, my master sent me to say, not true, Elisha did not send him to say this, that there are two men who have just come over the hills and and they're in great need and, and we'd like you to give us something that we could give to them. Also not true. There are not two men who have come over the hills. Elisha didn't want him to give anything. But Naaman is very quick to believe that he ought to pay something and give something in return. And so he's like, yeah, you want one talent and some clothes? Here's two talents and some clothes. Like, you know, he's, he's being generous. And so he gives the guy the money and the riches. Gehazi uh, goes back to his house and you would expect it to say, and then he found two people and gave the riches to them. But no, he puts it in his house and the other servants are puzzled like, wait a minute, I thought that was supposed to go to some people who were in need and he just kept it for himself. Uh, so what he's done here is he has lied and he has told the man that, uh, you know, you need to give me some stuff. He's basically lied to trick him out of money and then not done what he said he would do with it, but, but is keeping it for himself. Uh, to make matters worse, Elisha confronts him, giving him a chance to repent. And he lies to Elisha too and says, I didn't go anywhere. And so Elisha says, this was not the time to receive gifts. And Gehazi, you knew that. And so he pronounces that Gehazi would be a leper for the rest of his life and his children forever. And that's like the hard close of the story. Like, ooh. So you get like hit with that. Oh man, he is a leper forever and his kids and his descendants forever. So that's a, that, that's a pretty stark warning, right? That's like, okay, do not do what that guy did. The Lord does not like what that guy did. What was so wrong about what Gehazi did? Is, is it lying? Well, lying is wrong, but that's not exactly what it was. Is it stealing? Stealing is wrong. It was both violations of the Ten Commandments, but that's not what it was either. Gehazi lied about God, about God's character. With the authority of prophetic office, he said, my master, the man of God, sent me to say this. So he leans on the God told me to tell you authority of this in order to steal. And so that means then, worse than those who would try to bargain with God are ministers who make God a bargainer. God is even more angry when his ministers make him a bargainer. Gehazi has essentially forfeited the lesson that Naaman had learned and told him the exact opposite. Actually, the Lord does want you to pay. The Lord does not work that way. And it makes the Lord angry when we do that. 
Now, that's important because I wonder if you are already thinking of the people on TV who say, send the Lord a gift by sending me a gift and all your bills will be paid. Or send the Lord a gift by sending me a gift and you will be healed. These men have a brother in Gehazi. And we see here how much the Lord abhors that sort of ministry. When his ministers make God a bargainer, the Lord is angry. I once saw a uh, documentary about a preacher like that. And you guys know there are a lot of health and wealth preachers like that. Uh, And this guy, uh, he was like a combination of, of a magician and a health and wealth preacher. His name is Marjo, like Mary and Joseph combined. And you can watch the documentary, I think, on Amazon Prime. Uh, but the whole thing was fake. And he would do these magic tricks in front of people, telling them it was God working miracles, uh, basically steal all their money out of them and then leave town before they could figure out that he was, that he was doing what he was doing. And for his last tour, before he was going to retire, he let a film crew come in and he just basically opened the whole thing up and said, I'll show you all of the tricks. And then he retired, so it didn't matter after that. And so you get to see behind the scenes all of the tricks that these guys are pulling. And at one point, he's telling a story and he says, you know, one of my favorite tricks to do is when you're on the radio, just, just say something like, you know, I know that somewhere out, the Lord is telling me that somewhere out there, there is a widow who is thinking about what to do with a mason jar of money that she doesn't know what to do with. And and the Lord is telling me to speak to that woman and say, here is what you must do. It may not be much money, but if you would give it to our ministry, uh, the Lord would multiply it for you. And I remember, it was a long time ago that I saw it, but my memory is that he looks at the camera and says, you'd be amazed how many old ladies there are with jars of money. Uh, These are the kind of tricks these guys pull to trick people out of their money. When we see Gehazi walk away a leper for the rest of his life and his descendants, we can take comfort to know that the Lord has not forgotten all of these tricks that have blasphemed his name. Now, some of us would see some of that kind of false preaching there and we would trust the church less and we would trust the Lord less even because someone has lied to us in in his name. And one of the ways the story can fix that is we can see here that as much as we hate false preaching like that, the Lord hates it more, right? How many of you who are parents have ever heard your kids say to each other, well, mom said that you have to, or well, dad said that you have, when you didn't really say it, how mad does that make you, right? When someone appeals to your authority to trick someone, right? Can you imagine, as angry as that kind of preaching might make you, what if instead these people were going around and tricking people out of their money by telling lies about you? What if they're using your name and saying, give a gift to your name and painting your character to be fraudulent, painting your character that doesn't give generously, but only makes bargains when the bargain is good for him. Would, would that anger you? How much more then must the Lord be angry over false health and wealth preaching than even we are? So, so if this bothers you, I just, I just want to encourage you, take comfort. The Lord says, never avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And we, we imagine Gehazi walking away a leper 
we can remember, yeah, vengeance is the Lord's and he will repay. So his people can dwell in rest, safety, and security. Okay. Now, as we look at these lessons, there may be some really practical questions that you may want to ask. And so I just want to finish this morning by answering those questions. Uh, you, you may ask yourself, now, wait a minute. Naaman went back, and he, he seemed to be very happy and generous toward the Lord, and he wanted to give to the Lord, and, and the Lord said, no, you can't give. Does that mean that I can't give God an offering to thank him for something great that he did? Like, are thank offerings bad? Uh, and the answer to that is, is no, you, you can give a thank offering all you want to. In the Old Testament law, there were prescriptions for thank offerings. When God did something for you, you could give back to thank him. And in fact, we see many places in the scriptures when someone does give a thank offering and is accepted. You can think of Jacob, who's given a great promise, uh, and he says, if the Lord will do this for me, I'll give him a tenth of all that I get. Or Hannah, who even says, oh Lord, if you will give to your servant a son, I will dedicate him to your servant all of your days. Right? You can give back, and you can even pledge to give back before you receive the gift. But here is the line between Naaman and those who give good thank offerings. The line is entitlement. Uh, it's a sense of payment for goods rendered. Right? It's a transaction. Hannah doesn't say, Lord, I'm willing to give my son to temple service, therefore you should give me a son. Right? She says, if you will give. Right? I don't deserve this, but if you'll give, here's what I'll do. Jacob receives a promise and says, if he's given me that, then I want to give him. But there's no sense of a transaction there. That's the line we must look at. So if the Lord gives you something great, he heals you of cancer, or does some incredible thing, your heart is welled up and you're like, I want to do something. I want to give something. He has given so much to me. That's just thankfulness. But if your heart says, oh, the Lord healed me of cancer. The Lord really did something. I, I guess I owe him whatever. That's not how it works. God doesn't bargain with us. No, no, he, he gives to the humble. We might ask also, does God reward people in this life sometimes? Right? Like it, it, does, does this mean that I should never expect that anything I'm doing, I should ever be repaid for it? Uh, and the answer is yes, God does very often reward people in this life, but he does it because he's generous. And so never can we do the right thing and say, hey, I should have gotten this in return. Now, we do the right thing because the Lord tells us to, and he gives to us because he is generous. He also gives to us great riches in the coming kingdom. And finally, maybe, maybe lastly, we would look at the story of Gehazi and we would say, wow, money causes a problem in ministry, doesn't it? Wow, that's a lot of temptation. Should we then just forego the money thing altogether? And is it maybe wrong to pay church staff for what they're doing? I mean, isn't that a lot like Gehazi asking for riches for what he is doing? Like, can we pay people for their work? Uh, and the answer there is very plain in the New Testament. They just have to talk about that directly, paying ministers. And it says, the workman is worthy of his wages. Uh, and that gives a very clear answer, right? What is the workman worthy of? His wages for his work, Right? What did Gehazi try to get payment for? For God's work, for the miracle, right? So the workman is worthy of his wages, but not worthy of payment for what God does. So when the pastor or the secretary or the worship leader put time into putting the worship guide together and the prayer list together, and they put work into it, yeah, we, we pay them for their work. When the Lord does a great miracle, there's nobody you can pay for that, 
right? We don't want to respond to that by giving to people in response for that, uh, as, as payment for that. So practical answers there. Pay him for his work. Don't pay him for the Lord's work. The Lord will receive his due glory for his work. So the big lesson then is that God doesn't give to the great. I'm sorry, he doesn't bargain to the great. He, he gives to the humble. And so what we must do now is humble ourselves before God. Remember that we came with nothing, empty-handed, but we have received the greatest treasure of all church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is ours. So let's pray together and thank him for that.